time for short play. Alex, it's Christmas time for me. It just isn't Christmas until Hans Gruber gets dropped off of Nakatomi Plaza. That's right. You know, Nick, Die Hard wasn't a Christmas movie originally. The script was changed by Constantine to align it with Sol Invictus, and the Council of Nicaea confirmed the changes in 325 AD. <laughs> Hat tip Twitter for that little gem. This is Swordplay. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode, a very special swordplay episode where we discuss Christmas and the alleged pagan roots of the Christmas uh, holiday. That's right. St. Nicholas. Or should I call you Nicolaitans? Uh-huh. Oh, ooh, tidbit, huh? Yeah, that's what I, that's what I heard this week. Uh, Christmas is evil because of St. Nick. And uh, he, he's the leader of the Nicolaitans from Revelation, so uh, Christmas is evil, yeah. There you go, uh, therefore. <laughs> and so uh, so I guess we could just re- let's kind of frame the question, or at least the discussion topic today. Um, Alex, whenever uh, people start talking about Christ- uh, Christmas as it relates to Christianity, people, some people say that, well, you know, Christmas has pagan roots. It's connected to... Um, pagan festivals in the past, and and after all, was Jesus really born on December 25th? I actually have a website here in front of me that says it this way, there is no evidence for this date. So then who decided that Jesus' birth would be celebrated on that date? Well, the early Christian church did not celebrate Jesus' birth. It wasn't until A.D. 440 that the church officially proclaimed December 25th <laughs> as the birth of Christ. And so... Where are they getting uh, this? I, they're, they're not citing their sources. This is from a website called allaboutjesuschrist.org. So it must be accurate because it's all about him. <laughs> um, yes, the scholarship of the internet never ceases to amaze me. Uh, but even even like, for example, I have – I just pulled up on my computer the Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church, and the entry under Christmas uh, reads in part, um, about December 25th, this date was probably chosen to oppose the feast of the Natalis Solus Invicti <laughs> by the Invicti. celebration of the birth of the Son of Righteousness, S-U-N, Son of Righteousness. So that's a pretty, I mean, that's a kind of a reputable dictionary, I suppose. Um, Oxford and all that. Yeah. So Alex, we're going to discuss uh, a lot of this this morning, but let's let's start with, was Christmas originally pagan? Yeah, so I'm going to um, unequivocally say no, Christmas mm. was not originally pagan. You know, uh, we could talk for a long time, get into the sources. The guy who I've found most convincing in his work, his name is Stephen. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce this last Hidgmans is what it looks like it's spelled. Maybe it's pronounced Hymans, but it's Stephen, S-T-E-V-E-N. And then his last name is H-I-J-M-A-N-S. And he is um, a Roman historian, specializes in the deity of Sol, Sol Invictus. And he uh, knows a thing or two about that particular Roman cult and deity. And so he uh, lays out pretty clearly a case that just destroys the idea of Christmas being pagan in origin. So here's the thing. The sort of smoking gun evidence for me 
If I had to pick one thing just to start off with, the earliest celebration of Sol Invictus on December 25th. Now remember, Sol Invictus had celebration days. Normally they were like in August, September, October. But the celebration of Sol Invictus on December 25th, on that particular day, the earliest recording we have of that is the year 354 AD. Now the earliest recording of Christians celebrating Christmas on December 25th is 336 AD. So that's some two decades earlier. So who's trying to appropriate who? Does Christian Christmas have pagan roots or does Sol Invictus have Christian roots? Now, the story goes like this. Here's what people will say, like a German scholar, Usner, mention him in a minute. They'll say that Emperor Aurelian in the 270s, he brought in a new solar cult, this Sol Invictus, and he brought it in from the east, and it was a different uh, soul than was already in the Roman pantheon, and it he built a temple for him, which is true, he did build a temple for him, and it began to grow rapidly in the empire, and it was wildly popular, and then the story will continue to go on and say, but Christianity, threatened under this, had to appropriate it and fight back. So, yeah, that's not actually how history went down. What do you think, Nick? Uh, as far as the pagan origin of, of Christmas, I mean, just the word itself, Christ Mass, uh, that's where our word Christmas comes from. Uh, that it's always been about Christ, right? It's his Mass, Christ Mass, specifically in regards to his birth. And this reaches back all the way into the early 3rd century, a full 100 years before the 4th century discussion. Uh, there were early church writers who were attempting to, and arguably with some success, pinpoint the birth date of Christ. You have Julius Africanus in the 3rd century, although his works are lost to us, they, we get bits and snippets through uh, Epaphanius in the fourth century, uh, that he's quoting Julius Africanus, and also Hippolytus, uh, he identified uh, as well as Julius Africanus. They both identified December twenty fifth as Christ's birth date, and a guy by the name of uh, Simmons, who we'll probably reference pretty regular this morning, in addition to uh, Hidgeman's. Um, that's just how I'm going to pronounce sure. it. Um, <laughs> Makes sense. Uh, Simmons, he uh, <clears throat> has also written a paper that discusses how um, these early Christian writers worked on, attempted to, and again with some success, identified December 25th as the birth date. And there's reasons, and we'll, we'll break those down as we go along. Right, but right. As far as the pagan origin... Um, yeah, I'm going to say probably not. Here's the thing. I, I thought about this last night. Was um, When it comes to who copies who, does the kingdom of God copy the kingdom of darkness? No. In fact, the, 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 the one who is original, is, it's God. He's the, and Satan has to come along later and use the stuff that's already there and twist it and distort it into something that's fraudulent. And I, th I think... If I'm tracking, if we're tracking the evidence accurately here, that's what happened with 
with Christ's Mass as well, and the birth date of Jesus is the early church was already talking about it. They'd already identified that date. And so Satan, through these pagan religions, hijacked it. And well, they made tried. This, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Attempted to, to hijack it, and, and it's, a, it's a, a fraudulent opponent, and it's a distortion. And so, yeah, if, if we're tracking the evidence right, I think that's probably more accurate of what happened was actually it's the other way around. Does paganism have Christian roots? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, well, yeah, have, be, yeah, because it's a distortion. It doesn't appear that the the pagan uh, attempt to to hijack it was very successful. I mean, right. if anything, uh, the pagans have more, um, I think, credibility in our modern era than they even did back then. And so, it, it's it's interesting how uh, myth gets formed today. But let's go uh, back and look at primary resources. <laughs> so, right. Right. Let, Let's, and so, so let's let's build on this a, a minute and talk right. about Sol Invictus. And so, Alex was was Sol Invictus, this pagan deity. Was he a threat to Christianity that needed to be appropriated? Uh, no, Sol Invictus was a minor and somewhat insignificant part of the the Roman pantheon. You know, it's the Sol cult was always there. It was a consistent part of the pantheon throughout the centuries. But Sol, as the the sun deity, he never overshadowed, pun intended, the more popular deities like Saturn and Mars and the like. Um, you can it's interesting. You can use numismatics to even show how popular uh, certain deities were throughout the ages. You know, if they're putting the deity on their money, then that's probably a more popular deity. And so the last coin minted with Sol on it was in 323 A.D. And that was, you know, 13 years before uh, Christmas started in 336 AD. And so it's just like, huh, so much for the popularity of Sol skyrocketing so much that the church needs to battle against it. It's like, really? Then why weren't there any more coins minted of him after 323? You would think <laughs> you would see an increase in that around the time that uh, Christmas gets started. And even when I say Christmas gets started in 336, that's the earliest recording we have of it. It was probably celebrated earlier than 336, but we're just sticking with what we have current evidence for. So that's that's what I found concerning the the supposed threat of Sol Invictus, that it really wasn't a threat to Christianity. So why would Christianity feel the need to appropriate it? It just doesn't make sense. What do you think, Nick? I found it interesting, Hidgeman in his paper, um, he devotes a lot of ink. You talked about the, the coinage, the money. He talks a lot about that. Um, and especially there's one footnote, footnote 17 in the paper on page 382. Actually spills into page 383. It's a very substantial footnote. <laughs> yeah. And he traces the history of uh, the Sol Invictus cult and religion. It spans about 500 years and reaches back into the 3rd century B.C., if I was reading that right. Right, right. And then the, he, 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 he cites all that only to say, yeah, but it's no big deal. It's just like... <laughs> well, you got to remember how long the Roman Empire, you know, lasted. And uh, the Sol cult was there in that time period, but so were all these other gods who were way more popular, way more popular. Right. But 
I mean, Seoul has put on their coins. Uh, who else has put on their coins? Um, Caesar, who claims to be some kind of you know god as well. And that's oh, Roma. It seems, it seems substantial. Deep. There are lots of deities on their coins. Tons of mm-hmm. them. Tons of them. I have some replicas of them actually too. And so uh, the, the quote the quote that got me was Seoul occurs regularly through the centuries. Right. Which he's talking about third century BC to fourth century right. AD. That five hundred year period. Without break or hiatus, yeah. And so that the, that seemed to me it seems substantial for a deity, but the reason he said that is because of the myth that Seoul disappeared and then Aurelian comes in the two seventies and reinvigorates a brand new Seoul cult that replaces an old Western Seoul cult with a new Eastern Seoul cult. So that's a that's a myth. So Hijmans is trying to say no, there was no eastern soul coming in to replace a western soul the western soul was there for a long time consistently and, and there he was so because so it's, it's part of the larger narrative for how this new soul cult jumped on the scene and threatened christianity so i guess we have unser to blame for all this so. usner usner uh. <laughs> all right alex let's talk about other holidays as they relate to paganism are, are, are any holidays an appropriation of paganism you know, I think that may be the case with some holidays, and there's even more research and debate that can go into this, right? Um, I, I think that Halloween is probably originally uh, pagan. It's my understanding that uh, Pope Gregory in 601 AD wrote a letter that basically insisted that uh, uh, Samhain, uh, this is just the Celtic word for Halloween, Samhain or Sowin, be Christianized, and thus the appropriation by All Saints Day. Not that All Saints Day started in 601. All Saints Day goes back before that, and so does Samhain. But that Pope Gregory came along and said, um, let's let's replace Samhain with All Saints Day, essentially. So that's what I kind of came up with. What do you think, Nick? Yeah, All Hallows' Eve, right? <laughs> that's uh, right. It's what it means. The Eve of All Hallows' Day, which is another word for Hallows, is All Saints' Day. Um, And that was a religious holiday that stretched back all the way to around the same time that we're talking here about the Christmas discussion, 4th century uh, A.D. Yep. Um, And so perhaps, I don't know, but perhaps like Christmas, paganism kind of hijacked that as well. I, I don't doubt that today, the way Halloween is practiced, there's a lot of bad stuff that's associated with that. Right, and and I think some of that stretches back into um, American history as well, and just kind of how how the the American practice of Halloween kind of morphed a a good thing, I think, just this feast that recognizes these saints, and it it morphed into something dark, and um, but anyway, yeah, yes. We'll have well, to do our Halloween special next year or something. That's right. That's right. You know, the thought comes to mind, though, Nick, and um, is it let, – let's say there are some holidays that are appropriations and some that aren't, you know. Um, what do you think about that? Is it okay for Christians to, quote, unquote, Christianize a pagan holiday? Yeah, why, why do that? Why Christianize a pagan holiday? When we're so much better at making up our own. <laughs> um, <laughs> Christians historically have made up their own holidays. For example, uh, Christmas. We're talking about Christmas. As we now practice it, it's actually the combination of two early Christian holidays. Christ's Mass, which is December 25th, commemorating his uh, Christ's birth, and the Feast of St. Nicholas, 
which was originally recognized on December 6th, um, and I believe still is recognized as a feast day in um, certain high churches, uh, Eastern Orthodox, Catholic, and all that. So, okay, now that brings in another question is, well, who's St. Nicholas, right? Uh, If we have this feast day honoring him, who is this guy? Well, The Nicolaitans. Yeah, that's... (laughs) Okay, some would say that. However... Saint Nicholas, uh, he was he was a, a generous Christian man. When he was young, his uh, parents they were wealthy. They died because of plague, and yet they raised him to be a Christian. He lives, by the way, in um, around the uh, third, fourth century in there, and uh, he was raised to be a Christian. He took Jesus very seriously. When Jesus says, sell all that you have and give to the poor. So that's what St. Nick did. He sold everything. He was, he was very generous with his, with his funds, with his money. And there's one or more well-known stories about St. Nicholas, but there's one in particular that uh, um, has bearing upon the way we practice Christmas today. There was a man who had three daughters, but this father, he could not afford dowry for them. And this was a time where if a woman didn't get married, chances are she's going to end up in slavery. Well, St. Nick just wasn't going to stand for that. And he wasn't going to allow that. He took three sacks full of gold coins. And as the family slept, here comes old St. Nick. um, And he tosses the bags of money into the, the, the window of the house for the family to find the next morning. Now, later tradition embellishes it and expands on this and says, well, the, the sacks actually landed in the girl's stockings, right? And so you, you that's what you do now for, uh, at least what the kids did historically for St. Nick's Eve, right, was they would put out their stockings in the hopes that they would get money or food. Oranges are, are typically associated with St. Nick as well. Um, even today, you know how you can get those uh, those chocolate... Uh, coins that are covered, wrapped in like gold foil. Uh, that's that's a an echo of Saint Nicholas in the story about Saint Nicholas um, providing these daughters with their dowry and all that. So um, all that just connected with the Saint Nick mythos. And so children, they loved Saint Nick's Day. No wonder, right? They're getting presents and stuff like that. And you know, uh, you. you you take that, and it's interesting, just kind of the way things morph, even when you – we'll get into discussions about what happened to Christmas and all that. But because the kids loved the present so much, you, they really couldn't get rid of Christmas entirely. <laughs> um, and so, again, um, we have – we're very good at coming up with our own holy days, our own holidays. Why, why do we need to rob from the bad guys who are really all about fraud and fraudulence and all that? So – my take on it, um, Alex, and you say? Just out of curiosity, uh, how far back did you find that story about Nick, St. Nicholas? Um, I actually got it off a, an Orthodox website. Those guys... Um... Oh, okay. Yeah. So, <clears throat> all right. So Saint the Nicholas question, right? Dot org, sorry. Oh, okay, okay. So... What was the question again? Is it okay for Christians to Christianize <laughs> a pagan holiday? <laughs> All right. I would say uh, the answer is possibly, okay? 
I think sometimes that could work out, sometimes not so much. Uh, the devil is in the details, really, about how one would go about that process. So I think appropriation, it could be done well. But if we're going to appropriate a pagan holiday for the purpose of uh, trying to infiltrate the culture, you know, let's say, man, these people, they're really stuck on this holiday, whatever it is. And uh, it's going to be hard to just waltz in here and say, stop celebrating this holiday. Um, so let's take the holiday and the things familiar with that holiday and uh, center it around a new narrative. So I think that's where the caution has to come in. There has to be a distinction between uh, elements of the holiday that are ritualistic, that may inherently be evil, um, and elements that are neutral. And if there are neutral elements, you can shape those to have new meaning with narrative. And so <clears throat> I think it, it can be done well, but it's just a cautious road. I would agree with you. Why not just start your own holy day uh, and just make it a, a competing holy day or something like that. And so, and let, you know, put it put it right next to the pagan holy day and say, okay, folks in the culture, uh, choose which one you know you want, and see how how influential you can as a church as a Christian uh, pull people into a new celebration with a new narrative that has uh, gotten rid of the pagan baggage. So I think that's possible. <clears throat> At any rate. We're talking about Christmas, though, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and if we're talking about Christmas, Christmas on December 25th, 25th, it predates Sol Invictus celebrated on December 25th. So for Christmas, this is actually a non-issue. Contrary to what everyone else thinks on the internet and YouTube and blogs and whatever, Christmas predates Sol Invictus on December 25th. And that's just what the evidence says right now. And so until new evidence arise, uh, arises, to say the contrary, uh, Christmas is not an appropriation of Sol Invictus. It's not a competition to Sol Invictus. Sol Invictus came after Christmas. 336 came before 354. So uh, what else we got here? Well, so then, okay, if Christmas predates Sol Invictus, why, why would people think that Christmas was actually originally pagan? Mainly because of a 19th century German scholar named Usner, U-S-E-N-E-R, Usner. Most people have been citing this guy's work for over a hundred years. <laughs> it's, mm. it's, um, it's sad because um, even what was available, sometimes we're like, ah, well, they didn't have as many resources as we did. In this particular issue, Usner had all the resources. <laughs> he just preferred his own narrative. And so... Uh, not to mention that Usner's work is actually just a pretty close copy of this guy named Paul Jablonski, whose work was done in the 1700s. Hmm. So Usner comes along almost 200 years later, just repeats what Jablonski had already formulated before him, and then these works get cited for the next 100 years as the the gospel of Christmas and its pagan roots. And, uh, you know, this, think about how easy it would be to go along with that narrative in the time of a very uh, Protestant-filled America. Why don't you talk about that, Nick? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, ignorance and, they just didn't know, and false information, I think probably are the two things at the top of the list here as to why 
people, even today, would think Christmas was originally pagan. It, this has roots back to the Protestant Reformation. Um, Martin Luther did his best Scrooge impersonation and said, bah humbug, and he threw out all the Catholic holidays. However, uh, if I understand it correctly, they did retain the gift giving for the kiddos because, you know, kids. And so <laughs> right. uh, Simmons actually quotes Scottish reformer John Knox at some length in his paper uh, on the origins of Christmas. And part of a lengthy list of what Knox calls contrary doctrine is Christmas. Christmas is contrary doctrine. And so that shows you what the reformers were thinking, and that has a profound influence on uh, American views of Christmas, especially given kind of our, our melting pot cultural milieu. All right. <laughs> um, the Dutch, they brought the tradition of St. Nick, a.k.a. Sinterklaas. The Germans, they brought Christkindle, or we might call him Chris K- Kringle, right? And that actually means the Christ child. Uh, the Brits, they brought Father Christmas. And so what happens in America, in American culture, is all that gets melted together. These various European cultural traditions get melted into a single character that we call Santa Claus. And dun, dun, dun. so people look at those traditions and they think, well, those those are all from uh, European cultures and contexts, and they probably don't have roots in uh, anything but paganism. But actually, all of these traditions, they're going back to, you guessed it, our guy, yeah, boy, St. Nick, St. Nicholas, way back when, all right? And those those traditions around him and being kind of this generous man. So, um, uh so that's that's uh, my take on I think why why people think Christmas was originally pagan. I think it it gets filtered through that Protestant Reformation, and if right. it's Catholic, it's bad. And yeah, right. That's that's an interesting hermeneutic, right? If it's Catholic, it's bad. <laughs> it's like, uh, where did we get that from? Why have we inherited that? Uh, why don't we uh, push back on that a little bit more? Uh, just thinking about modern day politics, you know, if somebody in a newspaper says uh, something bad about Trump, they're like, oh, liberal media lying about Trump again. Uh, but when the same liberal media says something bad about the Pope, people are like, well, you know, it's the Pope. So <laughs> it's like, it must be true. She's like, wait a second. <laughs> it's like, Have you thought to question the source of your information on more than just the things about the president? And so it's a good reminder, too, um, of what you said earlier. I liked what you said about how the powers of darkness, um, they are not as powerful as the powers of light, the kingdom of Christ. And so, yeah, I would expect the powers of darkness to try to be stealing from the church more than the church would have a need to ever steal from the powers of darkness. It sounds silly. Well, so let's talk about um, when was Christ born, uh, Alex? Do we have any idea when Christ was born, the date? Yeah, so this this could get quite lengthy as well. You mentioned Simmons. This guy's name is Kurt Simmons, K-U-R-T Simmons, S-I-M-M-O-N-S. He has a, a origin uh, paper on the date of Christmas being December 25th that is probably the best defense I've seen so far for December 25th being the actual birth date of Christ. And he even goes so far as to say it could be the date that was handed down uh, by the apostles to the church. And so uh, he looks at all the other theories and schools of thought concerning uh, how people calculate Jesus' birth. And so 
I would say just look at Kurt's work, and uh, I think he makes a good case that like it really could have been December 25th. I don't think it was December 25th. Um, I am personally a little more drawn to the uh, theory that it was on September 11th, more specifically uh, September 11th, 3 BC. And I know that would be um, – <clears throat> you'd have to work out some things with Herod's death, but there's pretty good arguments that push Herod's death back to 1 BC. So September 11th. How would we come up with that date? Um, it's through something called astral prophecy. And so when you look in the books of uh, prophetic books of the Old Testament, Book of Revelation and the New Testament, when it mentions things about sun, moon, and the stars, if you take them both as metaphor, as in like it has theological meaning, also with astral like cosmic meaning, like you can look up in the sky and you can see these things, like you, you can see the sun, you can see the moon, you can see the stars. They knew about constellations. In fact, their constellations were probably cl a little closer to what would have been like Babylonian uh, constellations, not exactly like our, our zodiac today, but very similar. Anyway, when you go to Revelation 12, the beginning of Revelation 12 talks about the birth of this child, right? There's this woman who's pregnant, 12 stars like a crown on her head, clothed with the sun, moon at her feet. Well, if you were to take that in a actual like... Um, astral like literal sense you could go into uh, a software program called stellarium and it's free you can get it on your computer stellarium and you can put in uh september 11 3 bc and you'll see that in that area of the world around uh, bethlehem there would have been at sunset the uh, moon under the feet of the constellation virgo uh, 12 stars above her head and the sun like kind of entering around her body and if that's meant to communicate when Christ was born then that window is like a really short amount of time it's it's September 11th 3 BC so that's where September 11th comes from um, if that's true September 11th 3 BC would have fallen on the Jewish New Year called Rosh Hashanah and so it is It is theologically tempting, tantalizing <laughs> to say, hmm, Jesus would be born on the new year. There would be uh, think theological mileage you could get out of that. And so um, astral prophecy is another thing that comes into play when you see Romans, uh, I think it's chapter 10, right, where it talks about uh, how can they believe unless they've heard, how can they hear unless someone's sent. And then Paul quotes, uh, I think, is it Psalm 19? I think he quotes Psalm 19 in that where it talks about how the uh, their voice has gone out um, over the, uh, what's, what's the verse? I can't remember, and I don't have it in front of me. Anyway, look it up, Psalm 19. If you go back to the Psalms, it's actually talking about the ecliptic has, has gone out, and it's talking about the, the route which the stars and the constellations take. And so it's basically saying the, the stars, the constellations, foretold and f announced the arrival of Christ. And so that can be referencing uh, what we see in Revelation 12 surrounding the birth of Jesus. It could be referencing, uh, I don't know, it could be referencing the star that the Magi saw. It could be referencing uh, any any number of things that maybe they would have interpreted in their own uh, astrological uh, context or understanding. So anyway, when was Christ really born? I'm not sure if we know. It could have been December 25th. It could have been September 11th. Uh, what do you think, Nick?
September 11th is in 9-11? That's right. Coincidence? (laughs) I think not. That's right. Wait a minute. I thought it was midnight, December 25th, year zero, right? I mean, come (laughs) on. B.C., before Christ. Um, (laughs) Just to cover our bases, by the way, um, one one thing you may run across is that temperatures in December in Israel dip pretty low. So for shepherds to be out keeping watch over their sheep at night, as Luke says in Luke 2, verse 8, that's led some to conclude this was probably in the spring when temperatures were warmer and it was nicer outside at night than in December when it's kind of harsh and cold. In other words, it was too cold for the shepherds to be out at night. They probably would have corralled their sheep. However, such an extraction from this detail I think is tentative at best, and others have have written about that as well. So uh, again, December 25th could be a legitimate date. So that's right. So you mentioned all that about uh, astral prophecy and the stars and all that, Alex. Um, let's talk for a minute about what significance do cosmic elements have in Christian theology and Christmas in particular? Yeah, so, uh, you know, you've heard me say on the podcast before, like the sun, moon, and the stars are stock language for describing the other deities in the cosmos. Uh, in the Bible, like Deuteronomy four nineteen through 21, don't worship the sun, moon, and stars. That's the other nation's inheritance. I'm Yahweh, your inheritance. And so the sun, moon, and the stars, however, though, in the Bible are not always in the context of idolatry. They're not always bad. Um, It can be used to talk about God's creation. It can be used to talk about how he communicates through his creation. If you go back to Genesis verse 14, where it talks about when God created the stars um, on day four, right? Day four, day four, uh, God made sun, moon, stars galore. There you go. So, what did he create those for? It said for signs, seasons, times. And so could God use those stars to communicate signs? Yes. Would that be the same thing as like tarot card reading or, or uh, you know, modern day astrology? No, it's not the same thing. But could God use the stars to speak, to, to communicate something to us? Absolutely. How do you think the Magi found Jesus? This may have been the backdrop this just the concept of this may have been the backdrop to why early Christians thought Christ was born on the winter solstice. They knew about the transition of the seasons. They weren't dumb. They knew that there's a summer and winter solstice, a spring and autumn equinox. And there was an early tradition regarding the relationship between Jesus and John the Baptist and when they were born. And so the idea was that John the Baptist was conceived on the autumn equinox and nine months later, born on the summer solstice. And since John was six months older than Jesus, the corresponding thought was that Jesus was conceived on the spring equinox and born on the winter solstice nine months later. So being able to cover all four cosmic transition points of the year through John the Baptist and Jesus, that would have been theologically attractive. You could get a lot of mileage out of that. That would that would mean a lot in terms of creation and new creation, right? What does it communicate when you have these two guys, one the forerunner, one the king, bringing in the new kingdom, king not of just the earth, but of the entire cosmic order, and communicating that this cosmic order was reordered and made new again and put under new dominion, and uh, their birth 
even their birth communicates that. Their birth communicates cosmic significance. And so that, you would have gotten a lot of mileage out of that, I think. So it's, it's tempting to say these four transition points through the year, through the cosmos, actually, you know, are covered by John the Baptist and Jesus. What do you think, Nick? Yeah, so you mentioned the Magi. Uh, they followed the star that led them to Nazareth to see uh, the Christ child. And then uh, Malachi, I think, uh, reinforces your point that sun, moon, stars, they're not always bad in uh, uh, prophetic literature. And uh, there, Messiah is called the son of righteousness, Malachi 4, verse 2. So, right, right. Um, so yeah, there's, there's definitely significance. Um, okay, well, so Christmas today. Uh, does does everything about Christmas today have pagan roots? You know, I won't say everything does, but I think some things do. Um, I had to look this one up, right, because I've heard of a Yule log in uh, <laughs> some songs, yeah. Christmas songs, right? But I've never actually seen a Yule log or, like, what the, what the purpose of it is. But you look up the Yule log in the ceremony, and it, it is a, a pagan ritual. And so I, I will say that I'm not interested in... A, incorporating the Yule log into my Christmas celebration. It, <laughs> it seems pretty suspicious. Uh, but perhaps there are things like that within these holy days that have uh, snuck their way in that uh, shouldn't be there. Um, the point, though, is that the date of December 25th certainly was not pagan, not not in the beginning. And uh, another thing that people talk about is um, the you know disparaging of the Christmas tree. And... My question would be, okay, if you use evergreens to celebrate or decorate during the winter time, and if that has meaning for you as a pagan or a Christian through the narrative that you put around it, um, if you were to get rid of that, what what else would you use? If you're going to celebrate something in winter time, like what else is alive? <laughs> it's just like everything else is dead. There's nothing. There's nothing alive. And so, to me, it's natural that the evergreen would be an element through which uh, pagan or Christian could create narrative around during winter, during some sort of winter celebration or decoration. Same reason why uh, poinsettias are a Christmas thing, right? You know, one of the few things living <laughs> during Christmas time. So that's that's my thought is that uh, even the evergreen, you know, it's a tree. It's a created thing. It's not inherently evil, uh, whether it's good or bad sort of depends on the narrative that you spin around it and the ritual performed right so if you're gonna if you're gonna perform a sacrifice under this tree <laughs> it's like yeah that would be wrong but <laughs> i mean are, are christmas are christians performing sacrifices or rituals to this tree not even by a long shot not even by a long shot what do you think nick well, there you go again, Alex. I mean, it's very plain and clear in Jeremiah 10 about the tree <laughs> in the forest right. is cut down. I forgot they about decorate this. it with silver and gold. Silver and gold, right? <laughs> Obviously, everything about Christmas is pagan. Wow. Not really. Um, <clears throat> I actually heard a story. Uh, so you mentioned the evergreen tree. I heard a story about uh, Boniface. He was a missionary to the Germanic tribes around the 8th century B.C., and the Germanic peoples, they had oaks that were devoted to Thor, uh, oaks devoted to Odin, and they would sacrifice slaves uh, before these trees uh, in honor of Thor and Odin. Well, Boniface shows up, and he's teaching Christ, 
And he doesn't want the Germanic people worshiping Thor or Odin anymore. He wanted them to worship Christ. So good old Boniface uh, pulls a Gideon and chops down Thor's tree. And the Germanic peoples, they were they were stunned. They're like, <laughs> Thor's going to get you. He's going to strike you down. Wait and of course, lightning. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Of course, that didn't happen. So Boniface, uh, people start obeying Christ, and Boniface says, you need a new symbol. And so he actually points to the evergreen tree. And he says, this is, this is your new symbol. It is new. It is evergreen, right? It's always alive, just like he pointed out. It points to heaven. That was another thing they were big on, and uh, it was kind of this symbology stuff. When you kind of draw it out, it has three points, and I think he used that to kind of talk about or illustrate or teach the Trinity to these folks. So evergreens, those became a missionary tool, all right? So, um, And originally, they weren't put up in a stand. They'd actually hang them from the ceiling in their house, or so I am told. Interesting. Um, yeah, so. Well, and, um, you mentioned that Jeremiah verse, right? You should say, well, think about how idols are built. Think about how stuff in the temple uh, or the tabernacle was built. What do you think the, the Ark of the Covenant is built out of? It's built out of wood covered with gold. They make the wood box, and then they put the melted gold on top of it to, to cover the outside. It's like that's how idols were made as well. It's like you carve a wooden statue of the image of this god and then you you paint it with gold and silver basically it's like you're not talking about hanging uh 20th century like plastic shiny garlands around the tree that still has its branches and leaves on and everything like that it's like no he's talking about cutting the tree down turning it into lumber carving it and then painting it with gold and silver because that's how you make an idol (laughs) so it's like (laughs) Come on, people. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the evergreen actually proves to be, um, it has Christian roots. Yeah. So there you go. take that. <laughs> well, okay. Um, well, well, what else do we have here then? Yeah. So let's talk about the um, uh, Christmas celebration. What, what, what are the earliest records of Christians celebrating any feasts or holidays? Okay. So think about this. In the New Testament, you have Jewish converts to Christianity, right? And were those Jewish converts still going to the temple in Jerusalem before it was destroyed in AD 70? The answer is yes. Yes, they were. They were still going to the temple. Now, did everything at the temple mean the same thing to them afterwards? No. No, of course not. But they still went. They still uh, maintained their own Jewish traditions uh, how else do you explain the Apostle Paul <laughs> showing up at the temple, paying his vows? Um, you know, of course he knew what Christ meant. And of course he knew that we as the church are the new temple. He's the one who wrote that. <laughs> so, But you still see this early celebration of feasts and holidays at the temple by early Jewish converts. You see um, Christians still celebrating in the first and second centuries Passover and Pentecost, but obviously when they celebrate it, especially after the temple is destroyed, they're celebrating it with a completely new meaning and narrative and understanding. Obviously, they're bringing in that Christ is our Passover lamb, that we as the church are the first fruits of Pentecost. Uh, What do you think, Nick? 
apparently there were some Roman Christians who were still observing certain days as holy. Um, in Romans 14, verse 5, Paul talks about how one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Um, so th- there were still some Christians in Rome that were uh, observing days as holy. Maybe the Jewish converts, and anyway, um, just like you're talking about. And But also, historically, very early on, most notably in Egypt, Christians were trying their hardest to pinpoint the birth date of Jesus and also his passion, that is the date of his death. Now, um, we might call those Christmas and Easter, right? Uh, Clement of Alexandria notes this in Stromata, Book 1, Chapter 21. He discusses how different Christians uh, down Egypt way held differing dates for the birth and the date, uh, uh, the birth date of Christ and the death date of Christ. Some acknowledged his birth on April 20th or 21st. Others said no, it was May 20th. And then some acknowledged his death on March 21st. Others on April 15th. Still others on April 21st. I wonder if the April 21st birthers got together with the April 21st deathers and we're like hey see uh what's it called uh what integral age or whatever uh that was a jewish uh tradition thing so um he died on the same day as his death um but so a lot of different and that's very early on clement is um uh, like uh third century early third century uh, if i'm remembering that right so here's the question for me why were these Christians trying to identify these dates? Just so that they could win some kind of biblical trivial pursuit game? <laughs> no, they were probably trying to pinpoint these dates because they wanted to observe them as holy, perhaps with a feast. And so, uh, again, that, that's way back there, uh, very early traditions happening uh, historically in the church for trying to, I think, it seems, they were trying to observe feasts and holy days and all that as pertains to the birth and the death of Christ. So, Yeah, that's interesting to think about. You're right. Early 200s is uh, Clement of Alexandria. And uh, even if what became the date that people celebrated as Christ's birthday, so it shows you that before that date, the fact that people wanted to celebrate and acknowledge the days in which Jesus was born, which he was crucified and resurrected and uh, those are important. Uh, I think that's a good point. Why would you want to know anyway in the first place? <laughs> right, exactly. Well, what else do we have? Uh, well, so there's another holiday um, that is uh, related to uh, Christmas. It's called Epiphany. That's right. Uh, that, that happens in early January, uh, January 6th. So, Alex, let's talk about what what is Epiphany. Yeah, the word Epiphany just basically means like manifestation, and it's usually in reference to the manifestation of Christ's uh, divinity. And so it's a holiday that predates Christmas, as far as we can tell right now. Um, and uh, the Eastern Orthodox says it, it was celebrating Christ's baptism. And that's probably true. Some people say it was celebrating uh, the day in which the Magi arrived, or some people say it's celebrating the day in which um, Jesus turned water to wine. And so the reason that those are all other early uh, 
guesses as to what that day meant is because each of those instances revolves around some sort of manifestation of Christ's deity, whether it be the uh, the cosmic star proclaiming this king that has now come down to earth through you know showing the magi or whether it's uh, it says Christ's glory was first manifested in Cana when he turned water into wine from uh, John chapter 2 or whether it's talking about Christ's baptism where a voice from heaven you know the father saying this is my son and the holy spirit coming down as the dove upon him that's that's a manifestation of his glory of his divinity so anyway that's what epiphany is and it's celebrated on january 6th and that's that's very early on that was the date now what happened was there okay so the arians right you had the arians early on saying christ is a created being he is not god he's not the eternal logos he's a god he's a little g god um and so arians um emphasizing the humanity of jesus denying his divinity um this is probably um what led to the earlier acceptance of epiphany which acknowledges his his divinity right but you can go the other way on the pendulum swing. You can acknowledge his divinity while demi- denying his humanity. And so what some uh, theorists say is that what Christmas did is it sort of gave this other side of the coin, this celebration of Christ's birth, his humanity. So Christmas emphasizes Christ's humanity, born as a child, a human child, uh, the deity wrapped up in human flesh. And Epiphany emphasizes Christ's divinity, and so uh, declared from heaven at his baptism. So the reason for celebrating Christmas may have been in order to have that balance in celebrating both Jesus' humanity and divinity. And if that wasn't the original intention, it certainly unfolded later on as one of the theological touch points. And just a fun fact for you, the original 12 days of Christmas refers to December 25th, Christmas, through January 6th, epiphany so fun hmm. fact for you yeah um so as it relates to epiphany in the western church um particularly rome uh, epiphany commemorates <coughs> the wise men visiting christ um you mentioned that and uh in the east it's also known as the feast of the holy theophany that's another name for it theophany being a divine manifestation uh, it was originally a date for the birth of Christ, it seems, uh, though now, as you mentioned, it's primarily to observe the baptism of Jesus and also the divine revelation of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all showing up at Jesus' baptism. Right. As you were talking, it was, I was thinking, um, it, you're right, Arius and the Arians, they, they pop up in the fourth century and uh, they cause all kinds of ruckus. Uh, but even before they show up denying the deity, the full deity of Christ, you did have guys like the Docetic Gnostics who right. were on the scene earlier than that who were denying the humanity. They, they had no problem with Jesus being deity, but um, he only seemed, Doceticism, right, uh, from Doceo, he only seemed to have a body of flesh, didn't leave footprints in the sands on the seashores of Galilee. So... Um, it could be, and again, I'm just kind of off the top of my head here, it could be no wonder these Christians were doing their best to try and pinpoint the birth of Christ. What better way of emphasizing the humanity of Christ than to say, he was born 
uh, of uh, of woman. So, um, yeah, let's uh, let's let's uh, do our best to drill down and try and find these. Uh, these things and emphasize the humanity over against the docetics who are like, no, he didn't have a body. Of sure, yeah, yeah. You could easily see them saying, "Well, when was he born? If he was a human, right?" <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah, uh, April twenty first. There, gotcha. <laughs> so, um, so let's circle back to uh, something we kind of touched on earlier a little bit, but maybe approach from a different angle. Is it right for the church to create its own holidays or traditions? Yeah, similar question to is it right for the church to appropriate pagan holidays? This is kind of mm-hmm. another angle of, like you said, the same idea. Is it right for the church to create its own holidays and its new one, uh, its own traditions? You know, I think of it this way. There, there is biblical precedent for this. Uh, Jesus, in the Gospel of John, he celebrates the Feast of Dedication, which is uh, celebrating the dedica- dedicating, rededicating of the temple during the Maccabean uh, Revolt when Antiochus Epiphanes came in and um, did horrible, uh, awful things to, to it. We'll just leave it at that. And so uh, the Maccabean Revolt restored sacrifice at the temple. I think that's around the 160 to 180 range. I can't remember. B.C. And... Um, so Jesus, he he's shows up at this feast. You know, he's participating in this feast. Is this a feast of the law of Moses? No, it's not. It's not. Is, mm. is it in, is it from an angel? Is it from heaven? It's just like, nope, not, I mean, the book of Maccabees talks about it, and that was that was at least in the, in the Septuagint. But uh, yeah, Jesus, he shows up at this feast. This does not have its origin in the law of Moses. And uh, I think that's, that's significant. Here's an interesting thing as far as um, the church celebrating feasts. So there's a major feast that I have yet to see early Christians celebrate. Uh, I can find where early Christians celebrated Passover or Pentecost, but you know what I can't find? I can't find early Christians celebrating the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And I think that's interesting because that was the biggest feast. That was the Feast of the Feasts. And I think that's because for the Christian tabernacles is still eschatological meaning it points forward to what is yet to unfold but we know will unfold it's the last feast i think to find its fulfillment in christ and his church Uh, it's pointing to the time in which the spiritual harvest of souls because that's what the feast was it was a celebration of the end of the harvest season and so there is going to come a time where the spiritual harvest of souls will have ended and we all get our new uh, tents, our new bodies, our new tabernacles. And so I think there's still eschatological importance for that particular feast. Maybe that's why it wasn't celebrated um, by early Christians as far as I've seen so far in my research. But, uh, you know, I think back to the original question, is it right for the church to create its own holy days or traditions? And uh, I'm leaning towards yes, you know, just, yeah, I think it is. I think the church does have authority to do that. Um, I think we, you do that anyway, whether you're acknowledging it or not. <laughs> Everybody has their own family traditions and holidays. And why would that ability, why would that right, why would that freedom not extend to the church as a whole? It, of, of course it would. And so anyway, uh, but I've, I've heard arguments from the other side too. What do you think, Nick? Uh, like I mentioned uh, before, was uh, <clears throat> we are um, really good at coming up with with holidays. Uh, Romans fourteen may indicate that the first Christians were doing this, um, uh, perhaps. But uh, if they are focused on Christ, uh, 
uh, why not? You know, it, we, let's honor him. And sure. uh, just don't bind it on others, right? Just right. don't say, right. you have to observe my holy day, otherwise right. die heretic. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> In, uh, you know, Nick, from our particular background, Churches of Christ, um, I think the hang-up is uh, people saying, well, it's, it's, it's not in the Bible, it's not in the Scripture, and if it's not in the Scripture, it's not authorized. What do you think about that? Feast of Dedication, you, you, brought, you mentioned that. Right. Jesus observed that, it wasn't right. in the law. Yeah, it's because we're talking about uh, traditions in the sense of non-binding traditions. Uh, you don't need authority from Scripture to have non-binding traditions. These are things that we do for encouragement and edification, for enjoyment. Um, if we're talking about binding traditions, uh, then you know the stuff that was handed down by the apostles, that's different. <laughs> it's like that we do need the Scripture for, right? Am I right. making a distinction that, that makes sense here? No, yeah, no, I, I think so. So you mentioned uh, <clears throat> these feasts, uh, the Jewish feasts. Um, Alex, should Christians keep Old Testament feasts? That's an interesting, yeah, side tangent here. Uh, I think that the, the modern Christian, they could try to keep an Old Testament feast, Passover, Pentecost. There's precedent for that. Although, uh, you have to admit, it would be radically different than <laughs> what the Law of Moses prescribes, right? Go back and right. read the Old Testament. Um, you can't really do much of what's described in those feasts because you don't have the temple. And so uh, we as the temple of Christ, as the church, that's there. But there are a lot of things you do at those feasts that you just can't do because you don't have the the temple that was there when it was uh, instituted, or the tabernacle. It would obviously, if you did celebrate these feasts, it would have to be framed in the context of Christ's fulfillment, right? That's that's the whole uh, undergirding of um, Christianity. When John says in uh, chapter 1, the law came through Moses, uh, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It wasn't a diss on the law of Moses. It was just saying that everything that is good about the law was... Um, reenacted and taken to its next level, to its pointed end of hope and renewal through Jesus Christ. And so uh, to go backwards in that would would not make sense for the Christian. So celebrate it in the new context of Christ's fulfillment of that feast. And and now another thing to remember is like when people look up, they do research about traditions associated with this Old Testament feast or that Old Testament feast. Remember, a lot of Jewish tradition for those feasts come from the era of rabbinic Judaism, and that arose after having no temple in AD 70. And so the Christians should be very cautious about using uh, modern Jewish tradition as their source for how to celebrate Old Testament feasts, because that's a little bit anachronistic. Um, I would also caution against, as you mentioned before, um, binding Old Testament feasts on Christians or even just using it as a measure of Christian virtue. That would be, uh, that would be wrong. Uh, this should be seen as a, as a personal choice, as a uh, non-binding tradition and uh, not used as a, as a tool of Christian virtue or superiority. It's like if, if, you, if you keep Old Testament feasts, you are not one iota more righteous than somebody who doesn't keep the Old Testament feast and keeps Christmas <laughs> instead. It's like it, it's, this is the kind of confusion, though, that is out there because of blogs and videos that don't go back into primary resources. What are your thoughts, Nick? 
Uh, you mentioned the early church. They still hung out around the temple um, uh, in the early chapters of Acts. And let's not forget that Paul, he hustled back to Jerusalem uh, for Pentecost. Uh, Passover was uh, over and past. <laughs> and Acts uh, 20, verse 6, all the way to 21, verse 17, uh, he's hustling back to Jerusalem for uh, Pentecost. And while he's there, he even observes a vow with some men who, with James, uh, there in Jerusalem. These men were zealous for the law. Right. Acts 21, verse 18 and following talks about that. So um, let's talk about traditions, uh, Christmas traditions. Alex, what, what are some of your favorite Christmas traditions uh, with your family? Could be fun, could be theologically connected. Yeah, so on a lighter-hearted note, right, for the episode. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, one tradition that we've uh, done for several years now is we make a giant pancake, and so we take a we take a 14 inch uh, cast iron pizza pan, and we heat it up on this uh, big griddle burner that we have on our stovetop, and we just make a huge 14 inch pancake. Mm-hmm. And uh, as our kids get older, you know we're going to have to make more of these uh, giant pancakes, and so we feel like little children sitting at the table of giants. <laughs> So, I don't know. It's just really fun, quirky thing that we like to do and sit around and eat together. We just all circle around this big pancake and eat it together. Don't even separate it on the plates. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I love pancakes. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> for us, we have these uh, – We actually, one of our family members, relatives, they made these massive stockings, and we use them for, like, stocking stuffers, th- things like that. We do Santa Claus in our house. Um but Santa does not give better gifts than mom and dad. All right, uh, mom and dad have deeper pockets than Santa does. So, That's right. and and part of, there's a reason for that. Part of it is um, the the Santa Claus tradition, especially. And I think we'll talk about this more in a moment. But if we connect it back to our your boy Saint Nicholas, um, I think there's value there. Um, but at the end of the day. Mom and Dad, because we've been blessed by God, we're the ones who supply you with these gifts. Um, uh, and uh, Santa Claus does good, but Mom and Dad do better. So, <clears throat> well, what else we got? Uh, let's. Uh, so, all right, Santa, Christmas today, and and how Christians uh, handle it, Alex. What what could be done to make Christmas better? Um, in terms of uh, Christians and how they observe it. Yeah, I would say first, don't throw out the baby with the bath water. Uh, Christmas belongs to the Christian. It was never the pagan's holiday. Um, now, this is this means a lot to me because I didn't really grow up with uh, uh, a lot of, you know, Christmas uh, spirit, right? And so, uh, and having the background in the Churches of Christ, I found that in our background, it, mostly Christmas is just kind of ignored. It's, it's <laughs> and so... It's like, if you celebrate it, great. If not, whatever, like, moving on. And so it really wasn't until, I think, a couple years ago where I started to do more research, come across more um, articles and journals, you know, laying out, like Hidgeman's lays out, that, like, Christmas was not a pagan holiday that Christians came and appropriated. And that, to me, that had meaning. I was like, what? (laughs) Because I felt like... I had been lied to by the American Christian culture that that was the case. And to find out that it's not the case, that it is ours, we we did start it. It wasn't pagans that started it. Uh, 
that that was meaningful and so i think we could do with a healthy christmas reformation and if you will and so and the first thing to do is don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. so first uh I think we could definitely cut back on the materialistic side. Uh, I think giving presents is great, and there is a spiritual discipline to both giving and receiving. And that uh, that theology uh, comes through, um, I think, in those um, early stories about St. Nicholas, which I think you'll uh, elaborate on in just a moment. Um, if there is pagan stuff that truly is have its origin in pagan ritual, uh, if that needs to be stripped, then strip it. That's fine. There's, there's, you know, we don't, I don't see many people doing the Yule log anymore. It's just like, good. We probably shouldn't do the Yule log. <laughs> and so I personally, uh, forget about Santa, uh, because of, as you, uh, I think really well said earlier, the American Santa is, is not really the St. Nicholas of old, is it? It's an amalgamation. How dare you? You're on the naughty list. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Go back to your reindeer worship. <laughs> Go worship your horned god with a red nose. <clears throat> so <laughs> we don't do the Santa thing in our house, but obviously Santa is all over the place uh, at Christmas time. So our, our kids know who Santa is, and they, uh, they don't have uh, – you know, bad feelings about Santa. They just say, yeah, Santa's pretend he's just for fun. And I was like, that's right. Santa's pretend he's just for fun. And, uh, they don't get any presents from Santa under the tree. Uh, it's just for mom and dad. Um, and so because of that amalgamation of what Santa is today and how distanced it is, uh, you know, maybe Nick, you have some ideas on how to bring that original St. Nicholas spirit back. Uh, as opposed to like some creepy guy coming down your chimney. But uh, <laughs> uh, for us, for now, temporarily anyway, uh, Santa is a no-go in our house. I think we could insert better theological teaching just in general around Christmas time. I think ignoring Christmas and the fear of Christmas being pagan uh, sort of freezes us. It locks us up to like hesitate to associate theology with Christmas then because then we're participating in this pagan cover-up. It's like, no, uh, that's not what's happening. And so we do need good theological uh, teaching around this time. Um, I think it would be helpful to rediscover Epiphany. I think that Christmas and Epiphany go hand in hand. I think that's how they originally were, is this um, t- 12 days of Christmas, Christmas doing being day one, Epiphany being day 12 emphasizing the humanity and divinity of Jesus, uh, celebrating his birth and his baptism or the revealing of his glory. I really like that. I would like to uh, do more research and reincorporate Epiphany into our family tradition. That would be meaningful to me. I think it would be meaningful to Christians in general to sort of rediscover that, uh, especially uh, you know, thinking about the Church of Christ background we come from, it's just like how how awesome would it be to celebrate Christ's baptism, seeing as how we're uh, one of the few uh, Christian groups that believes in baptismal regeneration. So, uh, those those are my thoughts for now. Just kind of spitballing. What do you think, Nick? Uh, so first, uh, <clears throat> hopefully, uh, any parents listening, you're out of range of your children because uh, Scrooge McFlood over here dropped the ball on the <laughs> on old Santa Claus. <laughs> Cat's out of the bag on that one. Um, <clears throat> I kid. Look, I think 
I think you're exactly right. We we do need to recapture the spirit of Saint Nicholas, old Saint Nick, right? And uh, it's a spirit of generosity. Uh, Tis more blessed to give than to receive. I think I've read that somewhere in my Bible. Um, Christmas has become. Uh, I, I listened to a podcast from Focus on the Family where they had um, the creator of. Um, Veggie Tales on, um, and I'm, his, I'm blanking on his name right now. Josh something or other, um, Vishner or Vischer. And so he talks about how Christmas has become the Super Bowl of holidays. It's been commercialized to death. But Saint Nick was he was all about humble generosity. Uh, I think we've made it about the gifts. Our kids, they wait for the Toys R Us catalog to come out so they can circle their favorites. Uh, what if before our kids can receive those toys, they went through their toy inventory and gave away a toy or five <laughs> uh, that they wanted to pass along to gift to somebody else as a, a sign of generosity, teaching our children generosity before they can get more stuff, right? Also, while I'm on kids, let's take the spotlight off of kids. I think our culture idolizes youth, uh, literally turns it into an idol, and I think that's dangerous. The only reason Christmas survived during and after the Reformation, well, not the only reason, but one of the reasons why Christmas survived during and after the Reformation was because the kids, the kids loved it. The kids, (laughs) they loved the gifts. So the presents were retained, but I think Christ has kind of been minimized to a baby in a box in a barn in Bethlehem. And Christ is so much more than that. Kids are great. Don't get me wrong. But it's not about the presents. We need to put Christ back in Christmas, that spirit of humility and generosity. Isn't it that? Isn't that what God did? When God gave his son, that was a, an act of the condescension of God in the incarnation. And then God, he gave us his son. That's the spirit of generosity. So humility, generosity are, are captured in uh, the heart of the gospel. Uh, one more thing, and this is just, a, I guess, a personal thing for me, but Christmas, we make such a big deal about Christmas. What if Easter became the Super Bowl of holidays, right? It is virtually impossible to commercialize the death and subsequent resurrection of Christ. Um, I think that's a much better holiday uh, that, that to turn into the Super Bowl, right? That, that Christ, he died, but he didn't stay dead. He came back from the dead. Uh, he arose from the grave. He has gone back to the Father's right hand. And, I mean, that's that's the good news that uh, shapes and forms us, is the resurrection. We live new lives because of that. Uh, so, Yeah, we'll have to do an Easter episode next year. <clears throat> that's right. Yeah. Uh, join us for our Easter episode where we debunk the Easter, uh, debunk the Easter bunny. I think you can commercialize uh, <clears throat> Easter. That's where we got the chocolate bunnies. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I think there, you know, before if you have any final thoughts, Nick, uh, I just want to say this one thing before I forget it. Mm-hmm. I think there are really three things that contribute to um, perhaps the the modern anti-Christmas uh, Christian subculture of America today. I think one is just the anti-Catholic sentiment that is just sort of handed to us. That's just our own baggage, right? Uh, two. The um, materialistic, you know, Americanizing side of it, where yeah, Saint Nick is now a uh, fat guy coming down your chimney, or it's all about the presents, right? The commercializing. Uh, so that's the second one. It, it's it's 
it is it's distasteful it's distasteful we'll say that and then third um i think a lot of people just look in general at the sort of the degradation of the family unit over the last decades you know several decades i think a lot of people have bad christmas experiences I think they have bad holiday experiences because it's a time where family gets together. And as the family unit begins to uh, crumble, uh, what do you think holidays are going to be in the memory uh, of an adult who who has a childhood full of bad holiday feelings? (laughs) So I was like, I think that is more common than perhaps we acknowledge that people just have bad. They just don't. They feel obligated to be with family during holidays but they hate it. <laughs> so I think that's another reason why, uh, you know, in those three top reasons that I gave, why there's just, it's easier, it's attractive to just forget the whole thing. You know, what's a pagan anyway? It's like, and that's kind of the part I hoped we hit on today is that the it's pagan anyway is actually not true. And that um, there there's more to it than that. So I hope we've uh, upholstered that subject well. Do you have any final thoughts, Nick? Uh, well, it's Christmas time. Let's. Uh, <clears throat> we usually end with a, a game, but since I've destroyed the games <laughs> with my awesomeness, <laughs> um, actually, we, we want to Christmas time. Let's crown a Grinch of the year. Um, just uh, I, I, so I was thinking about who would be our Grinch of the year. And who came to mind was uh, Pastor James McDonald, former pastor of Harvest Bible Church. Yuck. And you trace this story through the year, just this year, and it's um, it's startling. Uh, and, and I think by the time I get through with this, you'll see why uh, former pastor James McDonald deserves the title Grinch of the Year for this year. And it starts back in February. James McDonald gets fired from Harvest Bible Church, Harvest Bible Chapel in the Chicago area. Shocking audio is revealed. Um, things that, that uh, he says in, in this audio, it's released by a shock jock in the Chicago area. Go figure. And um, allegedly on this tape, it is James McDonald doing some pretty disturbing things. One, trying to find someone to hire to murder his son-in-law. Again, this is all alleged. And then um, trying to find someone who can, I guess, engage in some kind of cyber espionage or cyber terrorism, trying to get someone who will plant child pornography on the computer for the editor of Christianity Today. Not good. In May, uh, former pastor James McDonald tries to sue the church that fired him, and then uh, last month it comes out that the the elders of Harvest Bible Church, after an extensive investigation, internal investigation, they determine James McDonald is disqualified for the ministry. You think? <laughs> and then days later, James McDonald issues he calls it my repentance. And here's a portion. Quote, I was, am, and will remain very sorry for the careless and hurtful words that were illegally recorded and publicized. So um, kind of a backhanded (laughs) uh, 
repentance, <laughs> backhanded apology oh, from uh, James McDonald. And then the last thing, it was reported last month that um, he is now joined New Life Covenant Church, I think, in the in the Chicago area. He is joined as a member uh, there. And so, um, at any rate, because of all this stuff uh, that's come out this past year, Pastor James McDonald has received the Swordplay Grinch of the Year Award. So, there you go. You know, Nick, I think uh, that reward is perhaps undeserved. When you think about the Grinch, he uh, he actually grew a heart and repented, and so, and it wasn't a backhanded that's right. <laughs> repentance. That's right. Hey, I'm sorry you guys got offended that I stole your gifts, right? <laughs> it was genuine repentance. Yes, yes. Uh, so uh, perhaps the Grinch is uh, a little bit too too kind of a compliment to this guy, but. Uh, you know, there you go. Grinch of the Year. James McDonald. Is that his name, James McDonald? Yeah, James McDonald. Ah. Well, uh, I think that's going to do it for the this episode. Listen, go into the Google Play Store, Google Play Music Store, go into the iTunes Store, and search Swordplay. And you'll find all of our episodes there. You can download them to your particular device and leave a review, share it on social media. That'll help us get the word out about the podcast. And if you have any questions, send your questions to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com, swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in again to another episode of Swordplay. We'll see you next time.